Welcome to Uplifting Women Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by upliftingwomen.net, as well as Holly Tesca Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Join our co-hosts, Holly Tesca and Kristen Strunk, thought partners in the world of leadership, equality, and personal and professional development. Listen as they bring stories of inspirational women and their allies who are working every day for authentic leadership, equality, and inclusion in business, education, and community. These are the stories of the people whose mission it is to ensure others are seen, heard, and respected. They've overcome challenges in the workplace and the world or supported other women in doing so. Holly and Kristen are committed to uplifting women's voices, sharing inspiration, advice, and maybe even a few laughs from women and their allies about the work they are doing to promote inclusion and equality in our world. They believe that by sharing stories of challenge and triumph, we can all make the world a better place as we inspire others to step fully into their personal leadership space. We are so happy you have joined us today for our conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Uplifting Women podcast. This is Holly Tesca, and my co-host, Kristen, is unavailable to be with us today. So it's just going to be me. And I'm here today with another young woman's very inspiring story of success. Wilma Metcalf is an attorney licensed in Florida who's currently a law clerk in the United States District Court for the Middle District of Florida. Say that five times fast. (laughs) Tell me about it. (laughs) She earned her bachelor's degree from Duke University in 2013 and her law degree summa cum laude from Stetson University College of Law in 2021. Wilma was valedictorian of her law class and served as editor-in-chief of Stetson Law Review. She's also published two law review articles, one which will come out in March of 2023, and she was recently accepted by the Department of Justice's Honor Program to work in its civil commercial litigation branch in Washington, D.C. That sounds very interesting. Wilma lives in Tampa, Florida with her husband and her corgi. She enjoys day trips to Disney and reading and watching most things spooky and true crime related. Welcome, Wilma. It's so fun to have you here. And I should also mention, this is the daughter-in-law of one of my very, very, very best long-term friends. So um, I know Wilma a little bit on the side, but I've also been able to observe her from a distance and she's quite a remarkable young woman. And I guess people who would have would listen to your bio and hear where you are now would think, wow, that's really cool. But the story started a long time ago and it wasn't quite as easy and simple as people might think. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how did Wilma get to be who Wilma is today? Well, first, thank you for having me. This is a true pleasure, and it's always an honor to talk to you, Ms. Holly. Uh, so I, uh, I'm originally from the Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina, and so I have I've always appreciated being able to have that, that sort of perspective between the rural environment and now living in the city and having lived in the city for now all of my adult life. Growing up, we did, I was taken in by someone uh, when my parents divorced, I was seven or eight uh, at that time and was taken in by a wonderful woman who had been babysitting me kind of on the side and on the weekends for my biological parents. And she took me in 
because I needed a place to go. And she was a widow at the time her husband had passed away the actually the year that I was born. And so she took me in and basically it's hard to say that someone created you, but there is, I, I definitely believe in this whole idea that successful people don't just form themselves. It's a village, but I think that even one person can do that for someone. And for me, it was my adopted mom, Maxine. And she gave me, she, she may disagree with me at this, right now about this, but she gave me the independence and the strength and the courage to do things that people don't typically do where I'm from. And it was mostly from watching the way that she existed in her world. And so my mom and I, my adopted mom and I are pretty, they're fairly different people. So she still lives in the mountains. She, she travels, she came and visited me in Ireland when I was studying abroad. So she's adventurous, but she has remained where she was born essentially. And so I never really wanted to do that. And so we're pretty different people, but I think at our essence, she formed who I am because she was, I watched her work in nonprofits for my entire life. And then she retired from United Way and she, uh, watching her dedication to not just her work and watching her work ethic. And I would go in to work with her on the weekends and help her with filing help, you know, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. her with filing, probably more getting in her way than anything. Um, But watching not just her work ethic, but also the passion that she had for that type of work. So she worked in finance. So her day to day wasn't, didn't seem as impactful as someone who's like a case manager and working with people who are less fortunate, but she was so dedicated and driven by the mission of her organization. And that was, it really instilled in me this idea of service and gratitude and giving back. And it was especially true even at as a teenager, I recognized how incredibly fortunate I was to have gotten out of the situation I was in before I was taken in. And being able to recognize that really kind of put me, I'm very stubborn. And so when I put my mind, put my mind to something, it's going to happen. And so it was pretty much at that very young age, watching my mom care for people in a very deep and personal way, both professionally and even now she'll call me panicked because someone that she knew 10 years ago was missing or something like that. And so the way that she cared so deeply for people and took so much care of people really instilled in me the sense of service. And so I thought that I always wanted to work in nonprofits. I went to Duke thinking that I would be for a hot minute, I thought I would be a medical examiner, but then it quickly oh. into some nonprofit work. And so I, I always wanted to be her in a sense and tried to be that type of both very strong woman because she raised me as a single woman. She, her parents were a huge part of my life. My, her, her father is basically my father. Um, he helped raise me, a village helped raise me. She had a ton of friends, much like you and Denise. And so her friends became like my siblings and my like aunts and uncles. And so she had a lot of support, but the fact that she was working on a nonprofit employee's salary and raising me and really never telling me no and, and doing everything that she could to set me up for a good life was I, I, you notice these things as a kid and I'm so grateful that I at least had the perspective to internalize it and let that still 
direct my decision making. And when you uh, mentioned the DOJ, that was a big decision. And I think that Dustin, my husband, would agree with that because it's you make less than half of what you would make if you go into private practice. But again, it's this idea of serving people and helping in any way possible because that's what put me here. That's the reason I'm here is because someone took an interest and invested. And why shouldn't I do that in system I believe in or cause I believe in or other people? Yeah, there's a lot to be said about nature versus nurture. First of all, you're blessed to have had someone take that kind of an interest in you. And you're very wise to have appreciated everything that you've been afforded the opportunity but it sure as heck didn't come without its sacrifices on your part as well. You know, I remember the early days of you dating your husband and um, you're working for -for not-for-profit and, you know, let's be honest, you don't get rich working for -for not-for-profits. That's for sure. And, you know, even taking this, this job, as you're saying at the DOJ sounds sexy, I mean, it really does. I mean, gosh, think of all the things that you could be privy to, right? I mean, if you love gossip, what the heck? Not that you do, but, but you know, it's, um, it's kind of your way of giving back for the life that you've been given, I can imagine. Right, exactly, exactly. And I think that, you know, in your, so in moments like this, it's very easy to be very grateful and appreciative and very positive about, about getting to this point. And I am absolutely grateful and positive about it, but there are days that sometimes weeks, just pure stress. It's financial stress, but it's also, I haven't actually, I haven't been for a visit to my family back in, uh, back in the mountains in North Carolina in over a year. And it's a function of time off. It's a function of money. It's a function of a personal like relational distance at this point, because now my life is so different than the lives of my family that, you know, it's hard to connect with people, the Mm -hmm. people that, that made you who you are, because it's kind of a catch 22, because without them being the way that they were when you were growing up, you like, I wouldn't be who I am now, but now that I have developed into this person, it's much harder to reconnect with Mm -hmm. the other side of me that got me mm-hmm. here. So that has been, you know, financial sacrifice. Dustin cares, I think more about it than I do. <laughs> um, but and I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly hard to say no to um, making a lot of money, especially when you grew up without very much. But for me, the biggest uh, sacrifice has been that the, the relational sacrifice, and then also kind of feeling like you're bridging two worlds. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. I go home and I don't feel like I belong there anymore, even though I still love the mountains more than the beach. But then in this new realm that I'm existing in, that's a little bit more affluential. I have, I actually, I make enough money to live now and have a good life and still not feeling like I belong with these people either. And so, and that's probably a me issue. I'm probably the problem, but that's, that's a different type of sacrifice that I don't hear a ton of people of bootstrap story people talking about and maybe I'm the one who's experiencing it but I really doubt that 
And well, I, I imagine, you know, I, I, I just, this is kind of a personal question, but, you know, in some regards, do you feel guilty for having stepped out of that world and been able to make it successfully? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, I was, I, we may edit this out. I'll let you know, but I was raised Southern Baptist. And so Christians are pretty guilty. Like they feel guilty about a whole lot. And so, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? um, so I, I'm very familiar with the feeling of guilt, but it's absolutely that like right now, my, like my grandfather has had a slew of health issues and I'm not able to be there to help my mom with it because she's the, the load of what's happening to him is now falling to her. And so there's guilt surrounding that. And my mom is still single. So she basically growing up, it was just the two of us. And it was, I mean, she had friends and she had family, but it was just the two of us. And then I left. And I think that we both struggled with that just a little bit, but there's absolutely a and a huge feeling of guilt. And especially in the community that I come from, very few people want to leave, let alone do leave. And so there are people, I do have some close friends from high school that followed similar trajectories to me. They left home to go back to, to go to college. And so there are people who make it out. It's not like, uh, you know, it's not a terrible place to live, but it's just, that kind of culture does not really inspire people leaving as it's a much simpler. as right yeah, exactly exactly simple it's a simpler life it's yeah. it's just it's a lot less complicated and i can see why people would be content to stay there right. as well i mean there it's beautiful right. you know you may not have a lot but what you have is probably enough right and people are good to each other and you know there's days I lit. I certainly yearn for a simpler life. Yes. Yes. My uh, fallback plan is to move to the middle of nowhere and have sheep, you know, for my corgi to play with. <laughs> I dream of those days sometimes of just. It's always good to have a plan B, Wilma. It's always good to have a plan B. <laughs> I don't think oh. I'm cut out for the farming life, but the idea of it, you know, it, it's really, it really grabs you. Yeah. Well, and um, I don't know, how long does this honors program with the DOJ last? So there's a few, con- there's a few conditions on it. So it's, te- it's theoretically as long as I want it to be. But of course, throughout the, I think it's 14 month period or something like that. There's like a, pro- like a probationary period, essentially, sure. yeah. of like to make sure you can do the job. And then, and then after that is when you get the permanent, is my understanding, is when you would get the permanent position. Mm-hmm. So DC could be it if I can convince Dustin of that and also if I can keep the job. Yeah. Well, I don't think I have a whole heck of a lot of concerns about your ability to keep the job. Certainly you've demonstrated an amazing trajectory through school here, graduating at the top of your law class. I mean, this is a phenomenal, uh, it's a, it's an amazing accomplishment you know, so you should be very proud of that. And I don't think you're going to struggle to make your way at the DOJ. That's for sure. But, you know, what a, what a great, what a great place to really start to cut your teeth as an attorney. I mean, that's where, that's like the head of the giant. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, and it's, you know, and we've, we've talked a little bit about 
personally like roles of women in our society. And so, and so one of the things that has, that I've begun to appreciate more about service is that you don't have to be at the grassroots level in a nonprofit to make a difference. And that there is something to be said for female representation in these bigger institutions in the head of the snake, so to speak, there is something to be said for uh, not have, not, being the person getting your hands dirty in the trenches and being the the underrepresented, I, I'm a white female, um, so not as underrepresented, but being a female in a position like that, where, you know, we need to see more, more like us. And I think you see that across all levels. I think the government probably has more women than you would, than I, than I would expect, but because of the hours, it's just much more flexible um, hours, there's no billing requirement, which you'll hear a lot of private attorneys, it's the bane of their existence. And that's, yes. what you see. and it's easier to have a family in, in that type of environment where you can be more flexible and things like that. But, and you, you also see that absence of representation in leadership at, at private law firms as well. And yeah. So, right. Yeah. You were sharing some, uh, some statistics about that only about 23% of equity partners in U.S. law firms are women, in spite of the fact that about half of all law students are female. Right. That's pretty crazy. And, you know, I have to imagine that um, there are even more stratifications depending upon the type of law that you choose to practice. So employment law versus you know, being a criminal defense attorney, for example, or a corporate attorney, something like that. So yeah, these are still big hurdles for women to overcome and rise to a place of equality. I mean, not only are they half, I mean, they're half of all the brains that are running the country that are keeping our legal system safe. And oftentimes they end up having to do it from the shadows instead of from the front row. Right, right. And getting the credit, you know, yeah, being, yeah, being the face is, you know, repre- there's a lot of, I think, disagreement on the importance of representation. But I mean, me for one, I, or I for one, excuse me, that is my judgment, murder me uh, for that medical error. Watched, I, you know, I was, I was kind of bought into it until I, and then when I saw Wonder Woman for the first time, and I know there's a slew of, triggers and Wonder Woman and there's I've heard so many rumors about problems with it but I was in tears at the the part where she is going across no man's land and just the image of seeing this woman charging into battle and the men being afraid to was like yes that is exactly what's happening and that's what we feel like but it just doesn't look like that because Sometimes the opportunities aren't there, but there's also still these expectations that women are not the people who are in charge. They're not leading the charge into battle um, for the most part. And so that's been, I was, I had, I had heard those statistics as a law student and was kind of skeptical, was hoping that it was different because you're surrounded with 50% of your classmates are, are female. And then you actually start practicing. And when like working for the court, we see attorneys all the time and majority of them are male and it's all day every day and and maybe it's because the female attorneys are so good they don't need to come to court but that's probably not the 
that's probably not the the answer to to the issue. And I think that uh, one of the things that you see, and now that I'm I'm I was an older law student, and so now I'm seeing some of the younger law students, female law students that I went to school with, they're practicing and they're trying to figure out their life. And it's this, if you want to have children, private legal practice is typically not going to be a good fit for you. And so if you can't figure out how to make it work, somehow if you don't make enough money to, or you don't have the support in your partner, then you leave the legal profession, you go into like state court practice is sometimes a route that a lot of people go, a lot of women go because there's more flexibility, Hmm. but you're not seeing, but you're seeing a lot of family oriented women being pretty much excluded from private practice because their policies aren't, don't jive with that kind of mentality, wanting to, wanting some kind of balance in your life. And it's, it's a problem. I mean, I don't want children, um, but that's a decision you should be able to make and still do a job you love. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And it just seems like we we aren't getting any further ahead on this issue in so many different ways. I, I mean, in lots of ways, this is the same fight that I feel that I fought in my 20s, you know, and making the decision about, are you going to eat or have babies, (laughs) you know, or, you know, who, who has the capability of making more money in a relationship, you know, it's not uncommon these days for women to be the breadwinner in the family, and a little bit of role reversal. And yet, when the going gets tough, and again, I, I hate to generalize, but I see a lot more women digging in deep to make whatever has to happen, happen than I see men doing. And that's not, I don't want to disservice any men that are full partners in a relationship and really pitch in and do things 50-50. They exist. My husband is a perfect example of that. But there are, you know, and we saw this during the pandemic when so many women just without question just dropped out of the workforce to be able to stay at home with children or aging family members or whatever caregiving needed to be to be done and the proportions by which that happened female versus male were unbelievable the numbers were unbelievable so you know here we are 50 years later same old story different day And, you know, one of the things I love about interviewing younger women like you on the podcast is I want this message of don't give up the fight to continue, because I do sometimes feel as though, and of course, this past year has been a little more difficult because of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. I I truly believe most people didn't think it was going to happen, especially younger women. I, I really don't think they felt that that would ever happen because it's it's always been there. It never was a question of, can I have a career or do I have to stay home and raise five or six children? You know, never was a question. But we lost it. We lost it. And, you know, that further concerns me in terms of 
what's next? What, what next are they coming after of our rights, right? Right, and I think, I think all of that is fair, but I, not to get to too preachy, but I always, when I get in those moments of despair about, and, and concern about where we're headed, um, I always think about Martin Luther King Jr. saying um, the arc of just, the arc of history bends towards justice. And I always, I will always go back to that because, you know, even though we are still fighting the fight, things have improved. I mean, now we have 50% of um, law students are female. And so that was not the case with like when RBG, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in law school. She was one of two or three and then um, had to defend why she was there in front of a group of people. And so I, I think it's, incredibly, I think it's an incredibly important time, but I also think that I think there's enough goodness still, and this is naive, it's completely naive, but I think there's enough goodness still bending the arc towards justice. And I think that, you know, one of the the issues with over with Dobbs, which is the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, is this whole idea of what is the role of the court? What is the role of Congress? And what is the role of the president? Like it's in it, in my mind, it was an essentially a separation of uh, powers issue. And so I think one of the, I'm not trying to justify it because I, as a, as a voter um, and as a, and as an American, I think it was the wrong decision, but legally speaking, it, it kind of made a little parts of the decision made a little bit of sense because there is this trend, there is this train of thought, this idea that the Supreme Court was really never intended to make decisions like abortion, and that that is something that should be ha- should be handled by Congress, um, because they are our policymakers, they're our lawmakers. And so something like abortion and saying it's legal is more on the policy side of things than a constitutional interpretation issue, um, which is what the court was designed to do. And of course, there's flaws to that argument, but big picture, you know, the, the Supreme Court's nine people. And so I, you know, and and I think Congress for a long time has farmed out a lot of their responsibilities towards policymaking. And I think that's reflected in a lot of these social issues going to the courts starting in, maybe not starting in, but really vamping up in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and now we're kind of seeing the consequences of that, of swinging back the other way of, oh, well, maybe Congress should be accountable because we can vote out the people if we don't like the decision that they made and we can't vote out the Supreme Court justices. And so I don't know what the answer is, okay. but I would like to see, I mean, I would like to see fundamental changes in the court, but I would also really like to see fundamental changes in just the way that Congress functions. Not just, it's not a, not a politics issue. It's a Congress needs to do its job kind of thing and stop leaving yeah. things for the court. Yeah. Um, they, they do seem to like to pass the buck a lot. Right. <laughs> really. It, and I, we all know it's in service of getting reelected. Right? right. And I don't feel that that's a real strong example to set for good leadership. And it really frightens me to think such why we have why do we have such poor leaders in Congress? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's some good ones, but by and large, I'm underwhelmed most of the time. And I think most people are, which is probably part of the reason that we see such diver- such divisiveness 
currently in the country because Congress isn't doing their job and people are getting frustrated with it and feeling that they have to take matters into their own hands in order to, to affect change. So it's complex. Certainly we don't have enough time to wade through all of these issues today in any way, shape or form. But, you know, it is, I completely respect what your position is on this. And I agree with you. It's unfortunate that it has, that it ever had to come to that in the first place. And now I guess we're going to have to wait and see what happens. But I would encourage people to get out there and let your voices be heard because it does make a difference. Right. Right. I completely agree. And I think, you know, people... You hear a lot about, oh, democracy's dying, democracy's dying. Well, it doesn't die if you vote. And so I, you know, it's, it, that is just something that I never really, never really understood not voting. And I don't, you know, I have a lot of friends who didn't vote. And it's um, just something that I choose not to do. One, because I'm a woman and it's been a hundred years that I've been able to vote. And I, that's not long enough. And so I, I think it's, I like to respect the struggle of, of women voting, but it's also part of having that ability to vote is being able to make that type of decision, that, take that stance and make a decision of no, that person does not represent what I want for this country. And being able to put that on paper, I think it's a, it's a powerful thing. And I, and I, I think it's sad that there's so much disillusionment with the system that people feel like their vote doesn't count. And, you know, to some extent it is diluted that you can't lie. You can't lie about that with um, things like gerrymandering, but it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And I think we've seen that in a lot of swing states of, um, and especially in the uh, primary elections of, you know, the votes were very, very close, even with um, in certain states having a lot of gerrymandering. And so I think that, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of a cop out to be like, well, I don't, I don't, you know, I shouldn't vote. Yeah. I, but, I agree with you. I I've always said, if you don't vote, don't bitch. <laughs> Amen. You know, and I can, I can share with you off the record. I can't make like, I can't have a position on this, but you mentioned like, where do we go next after Roe? Read Thomas's opinion, his dissent. Mm-hmm. Um, like I don't, it's not alarmist to say that gay rights is next, gay marriage is next, interracial marriage. There, yeah. so the 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 reasoning that Roe is based on, there's four or five other fundamental rights that have been recognized based on that same logic. And so, yeah. I mean, it's just the way it is. It's there, it'll go away at some point, probably, unless someone. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and hopefully we get this turned around in a way that it was meant to be. Right. You know, now, will we ever see that in our lifetime? I'm guessing not. But, you know, part of keeping, keeping the fight alive is about for future generations. And for people like you and me who have a lot of heart around supporting others and making a better world. For people to live in it doesn't matter you know if it's our kids or our nieces nephews aunts uncle whatever it is i want to make sure that i leave a world that's t- a tiny bit better than what i found right right exactly and i think that's that's the best any of us could really hope for well yeah there's a lot there's billions of people on this earth and we all can only have so much responsibility for being able to create a movement but we can create movement if we take a stand on something and we use our 
our right to vote and we do it wisely and we get people out of these positions that have no business leading our country. And um, yeah, there's hope. Yes, there's always hope. There's always hope. There's always hope. So, so before we leave, I always like to ask guests if there was any advice you wanted to leave our listeners today in relation to your personal journey, things that you've learned along the way that, you know, you really, they're core to who you are and will stand the test of time. What do you think those pieces of advice might be? It's um, a great question. <laughs> So I think one of the things that I try to always share with um, law students, because I'm a recent grad, so they, they often reach out to me, and that's not losing who you are in the climb, right? So when you're trying to get, you have a, you have a goal, we're all very goal-oriented, we're all ambitious, and in getting to that ambition, we can't forget either who we are and how we got there, but also our integrity. So I think that there are, it's it's easy to make excuses sometimes when you're faced with a very hard decision that could have an impact on your job and how much money you make. But I, you know, I, I think there's still something to be said for doing the right thing and not forgetting that as you, as you climb up that ladder, you're not climbing over people. You shouldn't be climbing over people. You should be helping up the people behind you. And I think that has been, you know, when I was younger, I don't know that I always followed that advice, to be honest with you. But now I see the people who came before me and even people that I didn't really know that well, that impacted me and influenced me and helped me along the way. And I I want, I wish we could see more people looking back um, and doing that for people who are coming behind them. Yeah, that's a really good call out. Yeah, we have to help one another. It's too much to try to take it all on by yourself. And I love that perspective, you know, be grateful for what you have, pay it forward to the next person. That's the only way we're going to create a better world for everyone. So Right, right. What's the, what's the point of having a privilege if you can't use it? Like, <laughs> use it to help someone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Wilma, thank you so very much for joining me today. Love the conversation. I know you're, you're going to do well in whatever you touch. It's going to turn to gold because you have a heart of gold. So thank you. I really appreciate you taking some time today and be well. No, thank you so much. It was so much fun, Holly. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening in on this latest episode of Uplifting Women Podcast. Holly and Kristen appreciate your dedication to uplifting women and look forward to you joining them again soon. This podcast is sponsored by upliftingwomen.net, as well as Holly Tesca Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Please visit your favorite platform where you found this podcast to leave a review. If you are an uplifting woman or a man who champions women's success with a story to share, Kristen and Holly would love to talk to you please visit upliftingwomen.net and leave us a message.